mean, partly because it's in the title, so I'm not sure about it. <laughs> but also because, I mean, there is a, I mean, it's very vast part of the past. Because I think we have to, in a way, look at meditation, I think, in a possibly wider environment, wider kind of uh, reach, that we, in a way, are not just meditating to attain a certain specific meditative state or to feel good, though that's nice too, I mean, nothing against it. But I think, in a way, the meditation is part of the path of awakening and very much is awakening to our own nature, to our potentiality. And it seems to me that this awakening, kind of in a way, being, living, recognizing, manifesting our Buddha nature, part of that, some of the characteristics of that, that manifestation is of wisdom and compassion. And I think this is quite vital because we have to be careful of, in a way, the retreat is in order for you to engage, in a way, in a more skillful, creative, compassionate way. You're not retreating in order to then slowly go backward onto the top of a mountain and stay there forever after. We're very much retreating so that it's like a training. So then when we come back to the world, it's with this openness, this spaciousness, this compassion, this wisdom. And I think, for me, wisdom, I mean, it's a very wide subject, but very much it's part of, as it was mentioned in the mindfulness and the thoughtlessness thing, that ability to know, to see, and also to act, respond, relate, skillfully and appropriately, so that there is this it's not that you stop all the time and spend 10 minutes, you know, what is the most skillful things to do, you know, but it's very much kind of, in a way, developing, creating, uncovering an environment where your natural wisdom will be able to manifest itself. We know and see the situation, the condition, yourself, and within that, there will be this creative movement, creative awareness to respond in an appropriate, skillful, compassionate way to what is going around us. And I think compassion is very important on the meditative path as it's engaging, responding, opening to the world joy and suffering. It's in a way connecting. I think that's why I think the metta, loving-kindness meditation is important because it reminds us that we cannot just live locked in ourselves. I mean, this is one of the worst feelings we can have, is to feel totally isolated. And very often this is very painful. And I think compassion is that natural ability we have to come out of ourselves and be there for the world, for others. And I think, in a way, that compassion actually is not just an effect, of the meditation, an effect of the meditative path, but I think is an active ingredient to uncover, open ourselves. It kind of has this effect to take ourselves out of this self-centered tower we create, where actually we get very lost and kind of in a way stuck up a little with all that grasping. 
And it seems that it's interesting when sometimes in our daily life, <coughs> not thinking Buddhistly, Buddhistically, religiously, or otherwise, we just respond, especially to suffering, to somebody's suffering. And it's very interesting, the feeling we have at that moment of spaciousness, of openness, of in a way being bigger than the small kind of things we kind of generally constrict ourselves in it. And that's why I would say compassion is so vital. But at the same time, I think compassion is not something that we have to create specially. It's not something that we cannot manufacture. I think it's something which is within us all the time anyway. I think it's being human, being alive. We generally have this innate natural response to the world, especially to suffering in the world. So I would say compassion is not just a Buddhist quality, but it of course has to be there on the Buddhist path. We cannot forget it because it's a very vital quality of, of being human. And that's something which I was reflecting on when I was uh, at home in France because, I mean, I'm living on the first floor of a, of a kind of one of these square French kind of house and my mother and grandma lives on the lower floor and so from the window I can see, you know, what happens with the neighbors, what happens on the road and over a few days there was a lot of coming and going lots of people going next door. Just a little above us, there is a little house and there is somebody living there, a friend of my mother. And every day I saw lots of coming and going. You know, people coming constantly, you know, nearly every hour going into this house and not, not the same people. And I kind of was wondering what's going on, what's happening. And, uh, and, I, and downstairs there was my little niece and everybody going there, he wanted to go there. <laughs> I want to go, I want to go. So I kind of asked my mother what's going on and what she said I thought was so beautiful that there was this lady who had just come back from hospital where she had cancer and she was just recovering and the whole village, I mean a big part, I mean it's a small village where we are and a big part of the village had just organized themselves because she was on her own, her husband had died a few years previously to take care of her. So somebody would bring food, some grandmother would do the shopping, somebody else would just check on her, somebody else would do the thing, and every day. And it went on for many days. It was not just one day. It was like, at least, you know, a month that there would be this, going there, by, you know, many people in the village. And I was so struck by that. I thought, wow, what compassion. All these people find the time to respond to the suffering of that one person. And they don't do it to, so that people think good about them or whatever. They do it in response, natural response, to somebody who's there. You know, and they organize themselves. And I was really amazed. And they're not Buddhist at all or religious or anything. They're just ordinary people. And so it, it again reminded me that it's true. This compassion is an innate response within us. We've got, all got it. In a way, it's not something special. But I think, in a way, through meditation, we can actually, you know, develop that even more, uncover it even more, kind of really be there with it. And I think that's what I want to, to talk a little about today in various ways.
So meditation is very much not a path, a way beyond being in the world. Because often, I mean, I, some people say, oh yes, you know, this is spiritual and that's not spiritual. And I find that very strange, you know, to say, kind of, and generally what is spiritual is what is above the body, above matters, and, and you wonder where are we going? <laughs> What is this? Famous Shangri-La, you know? And I don't know, I think for me meditation is very much within the world. And that part of it is in a way to respond creatively and compassionately. I would say meditation is not just about sitting still. Sitting still, walking is a training. But there is in a way a wider aspect of the meditation which is really to respond creatively compassionately to the world, to engage with the world and ourselves in a creative way. And, and the Buddha, I think in his uh, lifetime, there was this uh, wonderful moment in a way where he was, uh, you know, he was with all these monks. I mean, uh, at the beginning, the, the, the Buddha kind of slowly, he, he kind of in a way created a movement. Because at the beginning there was just him and six guys, five guys, and then, you know, more came and more came and then it kind of had to be a bit instituted. You know, so they had some rules and they had this and they had that. They, did this. they were kind of groups after a while. And then there is this story about the Buddha one day noticing how uh, when he passed next to a hut of one of these monks, because they lived in little individual huts, that, you know, it was smelling a little, little and he could hear this kind of like, you know, uh, somebody suffering. And then nobody was around. So finally, one, I mean, so you know, when he heard that and he kind of could smell something was wrong, so he went to see what was going on. And there was this monk who was kind of lying down in his own kind of excrement because he had dysentery and he could he was so weak he could not do anything for himself. He could not get up, and he had been kind of left there, and nobody had kind of worried about him or kind of took care of him. And so the Buddha kind of started, you know, cleaning him up and kind of, you know, bringing him food and taking care of him. And then, of course, the monks got very agitated. Oh, but the Buddha is doing this. You know, he's so special. He should not be doing this. But he said, well, wait a minute. You know, nobody is doing anything. You know, this person cannot take care of themselves. What? I mean, what kind of monks are you? Like, actually, you cannot respond and worry and care for for that other person, for that other monk who is really in need of your support. And that kind of shook the monks a bit. And they kind of got come off their kind of meditation pedestal and kind of went to kind of uh, help out and be there. But I thought it was kind of, you know, the, the Buddha in a way had to remind them, you know, look, you have to take care of each other. You know, you have to really look, you have to, to be aware. You cannot just sit and cannot just practice concentrative state. I mean, there is another story about the Buddha which shows how he was, in a way, engaged in the world. He was kind of responding to what was in the world when uh, he was, you know, he knew a few kind of, uh, kind of, how do you call it in those days? They were kind of sort of kings, sort of kings. And uh, they had various states. And then he heard that two kingdoms were going to fight each other. And so he went there and kind of stood in the middle of the battle. So because he was in the middle, they said, well, they could not kill him in the way. He was in the way, so they kind of, you know, and talked to both sides and said, okay, we won't fight, you know. The Buddha said, it's not a good idea, let's not do it. But, you know, two, three weeks later, 
that they all cannot get back together, and that, you know, they had a good reason to fight. And again, the Buddha heard of it, and so he went there. And again, he, was, he stood in the middle, so they kind of were a bit stuck, they could not really do it, and so they kind of stopped again. And then a few, a few weeks later, then again, the same thing happened, and then he stopped. Because he said, well, if they really want to kill each other, there is nothing I can do. <laughs> no, but at least he tried. And I think that's what it was very interesting that he really tried, you know, with all he could. And then, when he, he saw he could not do anything, then he let it happen, because that was whatever the cause and the effect that had, had to happen at that time. And you know, the thing which is interesting with the Buddha, which showed that, you know, he was kind of, again, concerned, responding to the world, was that in his time, there was sacrifice for, with animals, in order to placate the gods. You had to, or various ceremonies, you would have various sacrifices. I mean, nowadays, if you still go to India and Nepal, I mean, they have these places where they sacrifice animals. And the Buddha said, no, you know, in, in my uh, path, in my training, there must be no killing. And it's interesting that he, 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 he transformed the sacrifice of animals for the offering of flowers, <coughs> of incense, of water, of water, of candles. So again, kind of very, being very conscious of harmlessness, of not killing, of in a way recognizing life, and that life has the right to be lived, that one could not just take it like that for whatever reason. And so, in a way, I think this is one important element of the Buddhist meditative path, is compassion. But then it's very interesting, because if you talk to various Buddhists, because, I mean, you might be aware, maybe you're not, but there is many different Buddhism, and there is many different traditions, and of course each of them says they are the best, they are the only way, follow me, you'll get there faster, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or it's more complete, or whatever. And then there is this little, I mean, and this is interesting because there is this little, kind of in a way, argument, or kind of like a point of contention. And it's about compassion. Very interesting. But supposedly there is this school which is supposedly called the Inayana school, so it's a lesser vehicle. And they're not so compassionate. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get the Mahayana school, which means the great vehicle. <laughs> and of course, they're supposed to be very compassionate. <laughs> and it's interesting because then, you know, you kind of meet people and say, oh, well, you know, they. I mean, the Inayana, of course, don't call themselves lesser vehicles, they call themselves the older vehicles. <laughs> One has to be. And, uh, but what I found interesting is that there is this kind of idea that one is more concerned for all beings. And then another one is, seems to supposedly be more concerned with their own enlightenment. But when actually, when you go on the ground, when you have the, the various schools, like for example, you go to the so-called Inayana, which is a Theravada, which is like Thailand, Burma, etc., then you find as much compassion as if you go to the Mayana country. And I think it's kind of interesting to look at if one is in any given school and they start to be this great vehicle, little vehicle, and compassion, and less compassion, to actually go beyond the theory. Well, the theory is wonderful, you know. 
I think in being are numberless. I vow to send them all. And then you might be very nasty to your neighbor. <laughs> it seems to not fit in the all being. It's kind of, kind of separate category. <laughs> <laughs> the not being, possibly. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, but you see, when I look in um, the Ten Rivada country, like Thailand, and I kind of sometimes hear a wonderful story, and one of my favorites is about this great, there is this great master, Master Aksan Mahabur, and he's really renowned to be this amazing meditator and really strict teacher and really, really traditional. I mean, really to a great, great degree. And his teacher was even stricter and even more traditional. So he's kind of very traditional. And then I had a friend who went to study with him in Thailand. And she was telling me what he used to do, because he was such a great renunciate. And that's what's wonderful about in Thailand. The, the, pure, the purer you are, the more renunciate you are, the more money they'll give you. <laughs> you know? and, and so he, he used to have lots of money. You know, people used to give so much money, but he was a great, amazing master. And my friend used to tell me, you know, that for you, in the morning you would get lots of people giving lots of money. And then in the evening, the master would go with the car and the driver to distribute it in the villages to people who needed it. Mm. Instead of building another bigger temple or buying another more golden Buddha. And I thought that was very interesting. That at one level he was very strict, very on the meditation, and at another level there was this very intimate contact with the villager around. He knew who was poor, he knew who needed money. And then he went himself to go and give it, to make sure they got it. You know, nobody kind of got it in between. <laughs> and I thought that was quite amazing. So, you know, this great master with has so many other things to do. But at the same time, it's true that in the, in the Mayana, of course, there is this great bar to, to, in a way that you bow to save all sentient beings. And so it's interesting how that takes many different forms there. One of the forms they have, which I think is an, kind of, for me, is an interesting dilemma, is that because they vow to save all sentient beings regularly, they go to the market and buy live animals and then release them. So they'll buy fish, they'll buy birds, and then they'll just release them in big ceremonies. And then the fishermen will catch them again and then sell them again for the next ceremony. That's kind of marketing comes in here. It's an interesting point. But otherwise there is in Taiwan this very interesting uh, nun, well, because she was really so touched by the suffering she saw around her, you know, a lot of people suffering from illness. And that actually, especially for the poor people, there is very few hospitals where they could really get good care. So then she decided not only to create hospitals for these people to come, free of charge of paying very little money, but even more so she created a training for doctors and nurses so that our hospital will always be filled with nurses and doctors which would have the right motivation. We would do it not so much for money, but out of compassion, out of really wanting to be of service, out of really wanting to release the suffering. And now she has this kind of amazing organization. And it was just this one nun, started with nothing. And now she has this amazing kind of thing she set up. 
So in a way, I think each of us has to do it to, in our own way. I think everybody in their situation and all over the world that one can see how people in their own way find way to express, to respond compassionately to the world and to its suffering. And then another thing about, in a way, meditation and compassion and wisdom is that sometimes you hear this, that, and that what, a few years back I did this research for a, a book about women and meditation. And so I met many different nuns, especially in Korea, speaking the language. I was able to meet lots of them. And I met one, and she was, you know, a hardcore meditation nun. You know, and she was a, one of the elder nuns, very respected, really solid. And when you meet them, they have such presence, these nuns, they really cannot quite something to meet them. And so I was asking her about meditation and this and that. And then I said, what about compassion? She looked at me with a steely eye. Compassion? <laughs> Only after awakening. There is compassion. <laughs> Not before. <laughs> Only through compassion after awakening. So you must practice. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> And, and what was interesting is that I've been spending my time with none. So actually I've chosen a little different route. Because I think there is these two routes. You can choose the route of really, in a way, saying, you know, because you need wisdom. It is true, you need wisdom to be compassionate. So you might decide, you know, I really want to work on myself. So then when I'll be compassionate, there'll be more wisdom. That's one very much, I think, a very... Uh, an aspect of developing compassion through also the root of wisdom first. But then I met the older nun, I met a wonderful nun in Korea who said, you know, first she became a nun and she was practicing and, you know, she wanted to be awakened. I mean, she wanted to awaken so that she could save all beings. I mean, really out of compassion, she wanted to be awakened. But then after a little while, she thought, this, this is taking a long time, mm -hmm. you know. If I wait till I am awakened, maybe all these beings will have to wait for a long time for me to do anything for them. So then she thought, maybe I could act compassionately and at the same time kind of try to meditate, you know, and uh, go toward awakening. So maybe I could do the two together. And I think this is another path. The path of really wanting to cultivate meditation, awakening, at the same time of really doing something actively compassionate. And so what she wanted to do, what was her kind of wish, a vow, was to help all people. Because generally there is a good system in, in Korea, the family are quite supportive. But if you don't have a family, you really suck. Because there is no, you know, safety net there. There is no social security, there is nothing. And so she wanted to create something for all women who would be without family. And so again, out of nothing, she kind of created this place for all nuns and also all women. And it was wonderful because the way she saw it was as a place for them to be as a family, to be able to, to grow old, but grow old in a creative way, where they could meditate, where they could do exercise, uh, where they could chant, where they could, in a way, have a fulfilled life and kind of be within a very much family environment. And also you have the way which is to, to practice very hard 
And, and one interesting case is, uh, some of you might have read the book of uh, a, a Cave in the Snow, about this man, Venerable uh, Tenzin Panmo, which is a friend of mine. And for 10 years, I've already mentioned her, for 10 years she lived in a cave, high in the Himalaya. Mm. And so she was really a hermit for 10 years. And she's really a hermit person. I mean, she likes to be on her own. She, she thrives on her own. She has no problem on her own. She can, you know, meditate. She can. She's very happy on her own. And so she spends these 10 years in her cave, practicing very hard, and just time to time coming down to meet her teacher and things like that. And now what is she doing? Because she has been around for many years. Now she's doing actually the opposite. And now she's, she's not in the cave anymore. She's kind of come down from the mountain. And there was this very moving moment. I was at a conference with her. I mean, she's known as the nun who has made cry the Dalai Lama. Because mm -hmm. we were at a conference, a few of us with the Dalai Lama. And then at one point, we were talking of women and ordination and the situation of women and Buddhism. And then Anitendin Palma started to tell His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, about the terrible situation of the nuns, the Tibetan nuns. You know, she said, it's so bad, you know, and they have no training, and there is no place. And she went on like that for 10 minutes. And then the Dalai Lama started to cry. <laughs> <laughs> he was so sad, you know, he was kind of... I mean, it was a quite a, a powerful moment, you know, because it was kind of in a way tending power, expressing our compassion, recognizing the problem these nuns were having to be a nun. I mean, they were nuns, but there was very little opportunity for them to grow within that. And so she was trying to share that with his holiness, who kind of then started to cry. So we were all thinking, ah, you know, <laughs> they cry the Dalai Lama. And, uh, and what is interesting is that not only was, did she tell him and warned him about it, is that afterwards she really started to do something about it herself. Because she said, well, I can't really hope the Dalai Lama to take care of it. You know, I can maybe do something. So now she's, what she's doing is actually uh, trying to build a place for nuns, Tibetan nuns, kind of refugee Tibetan nuns who come from Tibet, and then they have no place to be, and she finds a place for them to train them and everything. And she's in a way like that kind of uh, mother, kind of like abbess, taking care of this temple. And in order to have this temple, she needs a lot of money. So she spends her time going, teaching, traveling over the world. When actually she's the last person who will say, I am a teacher. You have to teach her, no, 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 I don't know anything. No, 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 she's always. And when she teaches, she kind of convinces everybody to do everything. She's amazing. Amazing speaker because it comes from her heart. It comes from her practice. So in a way, there is these two possibilities of practice first and then, in a way, acting very wisely and compassionately. And then there is also the opportunity to just practice at the same time of acting compassionately. And I think we should not see them as opposites, but I think they very much complement each other and it's according to situation and circumstances. But it seems to me it's vital that we have this natural, innate ability to be compassionate, to respond, to open to others. But it seems to me that we can often be misguided, that actually a lot of terrible things have been done out of what I would call misguided compassion. 
And that's why I think it's very vital to put wisdom and compassion together. And that's what I would encourage you to reflect in your own life about, in a way, what is it to be wise and compassionate? How does it work? What happens? And I think it's very interesting, having this desire, this movement to help others, you know? But then, as a good Buddhist friend of mine said, you know, we we must be careful to not become do-gooders, you know, and kind of be stuck there. I must do good, you know. And then you look around, which is which is last the latest victim of my (laughs) do-gooding. What can I do? (laughs) I I must be compassionate. I'm a Buddhist. I must be compassionate. (laughs) What can I find? (laughs) You know. And, and I think sometimes it's a little like that, you see, because I think one of the first things to do with compassion, it seems to be an essential quality of compassion is listening, is awareness, awareness of the other. First is also compassion for ourselves, so it's awareness of our needs, what we need, what, how can we be compassionate to ourselves. And then when we can be compassionate toward others, when then I think it's very interesting to look how often we have this idea what is good for me is good for them. And this is not necessarily true. You know, that what is good for you is good for them. I mean, one of the examples is when you're ill, especially if you heal around tautness, it's terrible. You know, you heal around tautness and it's such an alternative place. You know, everybody will say, ah, crystal. And somebody says, healing. And somebody will say, you know, whatever is the latest trend. I mean, there is always kind of something new around toughness, you know, and they say, yes, you must do this. And they get very tired because in a way, when you're ill, of course it's good to get good advice, but when you're ill, you just want somebody to be there, hold you on and say, yes, dear, it's painful, it's all right, I am there. Because in a way, nobody can feel your pain but you, and you can try this or that, but it doesn't always work for everybody. So I think it's interesting this, you know, Somebody is in need, and I think the wisdom is to look. Can I help there? Can I do anything? Or not? Because sometimes the compassion is not to do anything, not to intervene, but just to be there, kind of as a support, but not forcibly intervene in any way. And sometimes you have to kind of try to really be there, be very active. I mean, that's what happened to me one day. I got a phone call from a friend, and she said, you know, I, I need to talk to somebody, I need to be with somebody, and I couldn't really feel that, you know, something was wrong. And this was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I had, I mean, the whole day planned to do this and that, but I said, okay, I'll come. And the whole day, I stayed with my friend. Every minute, I was there, every minute. And it was just fine. And I was not thinking, oh, I, should, I would be better doing something else. I was just there because I felt that's all that needed to be done, that I'd be there physically with her and just talk to her and be with her and just, you know, go through the day with her. And then I left in the evening. Then she was kind of better after that. But I think sometimes we just have to be there and that's all the things we can do. And then... Another thing I think is kind of uh, important to, to notice, and I think where wisdom comes in, 
is to be careful of what I would call superior compassion. Is when you actually feel, hmm, look at me, you know. You know, let's say you do something good for somebody. And then nobody notices. <laughs> or the person does not even say thank you. And it's interesting, because you feel like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> and you want to tell somebody, so then they say something good, you know. And it's interesting, this kind of, you know, look at me, I did something good. When actually you just do it for the sake of doing it. I think this is wise compassion. It's compassion without attachment to self or others. You just do it because at that moment it's a creative and the wise thing to do it. And also to recognize that there is no superiority. There is not the person who is up there doing the compassion and the poor little person down there receiving it. I think on the contrary, you should be you should be grateful that they're there so that you can be compassionate. That they, they allow you to open. They allow you to reach out to them. I think one has to be very careful with that because often there is very much this feeling, you know, oh, I am doing something for them. But actually, they're also doing something for you. They're really helping you to come out of yourself. And then, I think there is another type of wise compassion. And this is when you try to help somebody, you know, they're really in dire straits, and you spend lots of time with them, you listen to them, you suggest this, you suggest that, you give them money, or you give them that, you do this, you do that. And they don't tell. You tell people, well, what's the point of compassion if nothing happens? Something must, you know, there must be some result. Something must happen. But I think actually this is also part of wise compassion, of being there, being supportive, and accepting that maybe nothing will change. But the fact that you're there is important because there is some body for that person. And I think this is kind of very important part of wise compassion, that sometimes you can help things change and sometimes it won't. Maybe because at that moment it cannot. But you must not, you know, give up on the person because of that. I think this is quite important because in our modern life, we so much, you know, if I do something, I want to get something back. You know, I want, you know, there must be something happening. I think it's interesting to look at that, the one thing of results. Another thing which is, I think, interesting to look at in terms of wise, wise compassion is that often we think, I think we think of compassion in kind of slightly rosy, pinky, kind of, you know, nice, sweet, you know, all these beings, you know, yeah, I want to save them. Especially little babies, they don't cry, animals, they don't bite, people, if they're friendly. But actually often, the people who need your compassion are not easy, very difficult. And why, I mean, they're suffering. And when you suffer, you might not be easy to be with. You might be even difficult to help. And I think this is part of wise compassion. How to be compassionate, give time, space, be with somebody who is difficult, who is cranky, who kind of, you know, is ungrateful and kind of is difficult. I think this is also part of compassion. It's not just 
how sometimes it's so easy because it is very agreeable, you know. I mean, I spend lots of time with my grandmother and my niece, but I mean, it's such a delight for me, you know. I mean, it helps my mother, but I mean, it's compassionate, you could say, in a way, but actually, it's a delight for me, it's a joy to be for with, with, with them. So, again, one has to see, it's not, I mean, it's good to have that compassion of caring for ourselves, for the family, for neighbors, for, you know, whether we can, can become connected with, but also with people who are not maybe the person you like, the person you get on with. They also need our compassion. And also another thing which is part of wise compassion is, which is very important, is equanimity. I think this is very important, especially if we are working in what is called a service area, a social area. If we are a social worker, or if we are a nurse, or if we are a teacher. I mean, these are places where you really give a lot of yourself. It's mean compassion in action all the time. And at the same time, you have your own limits. You know, I think we have to be careful of these two things, about compassion to ourselves and to others equally. What is our limit? When is it I can give? When is it I really need a break? I really need in order to take care of myself. But also that when we are with suffering, we must have a certain level of non-attachment to self and others. So that it is this challenge. How can I be with somebody in pain? How can I recognize that pain? How can I feel it, be with it, and not be lost in it, be not overwhelmed by it? And I recognized this when I was uh, early on in Korea, and I was, you know, a Western nun, you know, and it was kind of special. So kind of a few, a few Koreans, often young people, would come to me <laughs> and kind of, in a way, hope that I would save them. You know, and I was totally ready to save them. But the thing is that, I had nothing, I could not. You know, and so one day there was this young man who came to me. I spent the whole afternoon telling him about all his difficulty and all his terrible life and you know, could I help him? And then I started to see, you know, how could I help this guy? And I thought, you know, maybe I could ask my parents to do this, maybe I could do this, could I do this, could I do that? And then I realized I was just a nun. And I could not help him in that way. I could be there for him, listening to him. But at that moment, this was the only thing I could do. So in a way, it's kind of like, when you listen to somebody, with somebody who is in pain, how can you be with that pain and not, you know, get caught up and totally kind of be overwhelmed by it? Because I think this is one of the challenges of compassion, of responding to suffering. And I think that's where wisdom, equanimity comes in, this non-grasping. How can we really be with it? but then not stick to it. And so I'd like to, to finish with just uh, a poem and a story. And the poem is by Zen Master Dogen, a Japanese master of the 13th century. And the poem goes this way. The, the way of the Buddha is to know ourselves. To know ourselves is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And the story is one of my favorite stories. And this is about, it's in Japan, and it's about a monk, 
who lives in a hermitage, he's just, you know, minding his own business, doing his meditation, you know, being a monk. And then, in the village nearby, there is a, a family, and there is a couple, and there is a, uh, the parents, and there is a daughter, which is kind of 18, 20, and suddenly, the daughter is pregnant. And the first thing the parents say, say oh, who did it? Who is the father? And for a few days, daughter, uh, uh, she doesn't want to say. And then finally, you know, they kind of push her somewhere and she said, it's a monk in the hermitage. And she said, what? It's a monk in the hermitage? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really kind of, you know, wow. And so the baby is born. As soon as the baby is born, they kind of take the baby up to the hermitage, knock at the door and say to the monk, this is your baby, this is your son. Take care of it. And the monk said, ah, so. So he takes the baby, feeds it, takes care of it. And then, after a few days, I mean, the daughter feels kind of bad. But actually, it was not the monk. <laughs> so then she finally said to the parents, well, by the way, it was not the monk, it was the young fisherman. And then, ah, no, ah, what did we do? So I rushed up to the hermitage, opened the door, said to the monk, actually, it is not your baby, this is not your son. And so the monk said, ah, so. And then he did that. So are there any questions? If not, then please have a good walk, and then we'll meet again here at 8 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.